This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. It's Sunday, November 25th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. The new week begins with talks between the U.S. and Mexico to keep asylum seekers south of the border. This just days after President Trump said he authorized the U.S. military to use lethal force to stop a caravan of migrants, an action critics challenge as unconstitutional. You're dealing with a minimum of 500 serious criminals. So I'm not going to let the military be taken advantage of. And in the final weeks of the Republican-controlled Congress, a House committee has subpoenaed fired FBI Director James Comey for a second round of closed-door questioning, a summons that Comey says he'll fight. Investigators also set their sights on a new scandal, first daughter Ivanka Trump's use of private email for White House business. House Oversight Chairman Trey Gowdy of South Carolina will break it all down with us. Meanwhile, from Mar-a-Lago, President Trump drew an unusual rebuke from Chief Justice John Roberts after lashing out at a judge who ruled against his asylum policy. Ninth Circuit, everybody knows it. It's totally out of control. And the president stands by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, despite U.S. intelligence linking him to the brutal murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. We'll ask a key member of the Intelligence Committee, Maine Independent Senator Angus King, what he can tell us after being briefed by the CIA. Plus, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders joins us to talk about his new book and the government's bombshell Black Friday climate change report. And we'll take a look at the past, present, and future of the U.S. space program. Prepare for liftoff. It's all coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin today with Republican Congressman Trey Gowdy, who leads the main investigative investigative committee of the House of Representatives. He joins us this morning from Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, Welcome back to Face the Nation. You've been busy over the holiday. Uh, We know that, Congressman. Um, A a subpoena was sent uh, to fired FBI Director James Comey calling for him to testify before your committee. He's objecting to the format, saying this has to be in public. It can't be in private because information will be selectively leaked. I know on this program in the past, you have said that uh, congressional investigations leak like the gossip girls. Do you think that Comey's right to object? You know, Margaret, I don't get a chance to say this very often, but I do think Jim Comey is right. Leaks are counterproductive, whether Jim Comey's doing it, whether the FBI is doing it, or whether Congress is doing it. The remedy for leaks is not to have a public hearing where you are supposed to ask about 17 months' worth of work in five minutes. I think the remedy is to videotape the deposition, videotape the transcribed interview. That way the public can see whether the question was fair, they can judge the entirety of the answer, but there is no finder on the planet that tries to discover the truth in five-minute increments, and I can't think of one that does it on national television. So we have to do it the same way we've handled every other witness, which is a transcribed interview, a deposition. I am sensitive to leaks. I hate leaks. I think they undercut the the authenticity of the investigation. But the remedy is not to have a professional wrestling-type carnival atmosphere, which is what congressional public hearings have become. Well, how would a tape deposition change that? I mean, his concern is that he's implying that this is just going to be political grandstanding. Um, well, pe- people act differently when there aren't cameras in the room. Uh, trust me when I say that. They're very constructive 
interviews when there is no camera. What I would propose, and Bob Goodlatte's the chairman, he, he, he can decide. What I would propose is videotape that interview from pillar to post, scrub it for classified information in case somebody inadvertently asks or answers, and then release it to the public. Release the entire interview, but do not make members of Congress question someone that Democrats think cost Hillary Clinton the election and Republicans have a lot of questions for, do not ask us to limit 17 months worth of decision making to five minutes of questions. No other serious fact finder tries to do it in five minutes, so I don't know why Congress thinks it can't. Is that a formal offer to Mr. Comey? If I were the chairman of judiciary, it would be a formal offer. I, I think Bob Goodlatte Bob Goodlatte hates leaks every bit as much as I do, which is why he doesn't do it. Okay. But he also is not going to let Jim Comey, who, by the way, the FBI has never conducted an interview in public. Never. And he wasn't interviewed by Mueller in public. So the notion that Jim Comey all of a sudden loves public interviews, he hadn't done it his entire career. So Bob Goodlatte will decide, and it won't be Jim Comey. You've also uh, put in a request this week to the White House for more information about why Ivanka Trump, a presidential advisor and obviously the president's daughter, was using private email for government, government business. People remember you well from the probe you led uh, into Benghazi that helped to uncover Hillary Clinton's use of private email. Uh, at the time, you said that there should be prosecution of her for divulging classified information or in any way mishandling it. Would you similarly call for that kind of prosecution of the president's daughter? Well, I will defer to whatever tape may exist, but I have assiduously tried to avoid ever calling for the prosecution of anyone, including Hillary Clinton. Um, and, and I'm pretty sure that's true because I've had a lot of Republicans up set with me. Um, there are two separate issues. The divulging of classified information is a crime. Using personal email upon which to conduct public business is not a crime. Um, you're not supposed to do it. It's not best practices. It actually violates statutes and regulations. Pu public work is, is a privilege. And, and part of that is you give up the right to use your private email to conduct government work. So you, you should keep the record. Ms. Clinton should do it, Eric Holder, everyone throughout government um, who conducts official business should use official email. Um, if you don't, then you should take other steps to safeguard it. Um, and, and that's what we need to know from Ms. Trump. But I've never called for Hillary Clinton to be prosecuted. And I couldn't possibly have done it for using private email because it's not a crime. Mishandling classified information, I think some have interpreted your past statements about that to, to have called for further actions. But in this case, the president has already said for Ivanka Trump that he thinks there was nothing to see here. Are you concerned that he is saying that at this point before there is an investigation by your committee? I am concerned anytime any president prejudges the outcome of an investigation, whether it's President Obama, whether it's President Trump. Um, the, I've already talked to Ms. Trump's attorney. I've already talked to Mr. Cummings. We've already written a letter to the White House. Uh, Congress has a responsibility to make sure that the records and the Presidential Records Act is complied with. And that is true no matter, um, no matter who the person is, whether it's Secretary Clinton or whether it's Tom Perez or whether it's Ivanka Trump. So we've taken steps. We, we've, we've done more in the last week than, than some of my House Democrat colleagues did the entire time we were looking into Benghazi. So I'm at peace with what we've done, but we need the information and we need it quickly. Um, and then the public can judge whether or not those two mm -hmm. fact patterns are similar. Uh, I want to also ask you before you go, um, you're an attorney, you're uh, a former federal prosecutor. Do you agree with the very unusual public statement that we heard this week from Chief Justice John Roberts, who rebuked the president in many ways, saying, we do not have Obama judges or Trump judges, Bush judges or Clinton judges. Do you share his concern that the judiciary is being politicized? Margaret, um, I wish Chief Justice Roberts were right. I wish there were not a politicization of the judici judiciary, but um, it's not just politicians. Every print article that you will go find this afternoon refers to judges based on the president that put him or her in office. And you see terms like conservative and ultra-conservative and liberal and moderate, which are political terms, but they're used to describe judges. So I, I wish Chief Justice Roberts were right. I wish that we did not refer to judges based on which president put them in office as if that is somehow going to inextricably lead us to the conclusion. 
But it's been happening since I was a kid. It's been happening for 50 years that we have used political terms to describe judges. I wish we would stop. But President Trump's not the first person to do it. I think President Obama criticized the Supreme Court mm -hmm. to their face in the State of the Union. So I wish everyone would stop, including the media, referring to judges based on which president put them in office. All right. Congressman Gowdy, good to talk to you. Thanks for joining us today. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. We turn now to Senator Angus King. He's an independent from Maine who caucuses with the Democrats, and he's on both the Intelligence and Armed Services Committees. Senators, Senator, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. Uh, in your role in armed services, uh, you will be looking in some way at what's happening with the use of U.S. troops at the border. Uh, we saw this week that White House Chief of Staff John Kelly signed uh, an order here that seemed to loosen the restrictions on military personnel and what they do at the southwest border, allowing to engage in some form of law enforcement or some form of lethal force. That was the phrase used by the president. What exactly are U.S. troops being asked to do? Well, the way you asked the question indicated the gray area that we're in, because there's an ancient law going back 150 years, uh, a posse comitatus, no use of federal troops for law enforcement. It gets gray when you get to the border. Now, if indeed there was an invasion, which there isn't, it, clearly we can defend ourselves. I mean, that's one of the reasons you have a military. But using troops in a border situation uh, in, with asylum seekers is, is I think, uh, not appropriate. If they're being used in support, you know, President Obama sent people down to support the, the border the Customs and Border Patrol, but uh, all the indications are this was an overreaction. The president said in a quote I think you had in your lead-in, there, there are 500 bad criminals. I've never seen any evidence of that. I haven't heard any evidence of that. I think if that's the case, clearly it's something we need to take account of. But uh, the question is, can we use force at the border? It seems to be inappropriate unless there is some serious provocation, which so far doesn't seem to be the case. And uh, are you going to put questions to the defense secretary or to the administration about clarifying this? Yes, I'm hoping through the, uh, uh, through the Armed Services Committee to be able to look into not only what the rule is, what the uh, what the rules of engagement are that the Defense Department has used. Also, I want to know how much this is costing. Mm -hmm. uh, estimates range from uh, $75 million to a couple of hundred million dollars for uh, something which, uh, by all accounts, uh, doesn't seem to be necessary. What is the timeline for this deployment? I mean, December, some have, have said, is what the Homeland Security Agency has indicated could be the end date. What I heard, uh, I, heard it, I heard an end date of December 15th, uh, but I don't think there's any clear answer to that. The, the, again, the question is, what was the necessity here? We have a very uh, uh, strong border security in terms of customs and border patrol. Do we need, did we need these extra troops? Was there any indication? And what is, the, as you say, what are the rules of engagement? What is the cost? And how long is it going to be there? And I think those are all important questions that the Armed Services Committee is going to want to look into. If you're talking about $200 million, that's a lot of money if the justification isn't there. You also are on the Intelligence Committee, which means you're one of the, the few elected officials who was briefed uh, by the CIA on their assessment of what happened with uh, Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. I know you can't divulge classified information, but the president has said that the intel community doesn't have conclusions. They just have feelings. Is it that murky? Well, the, the first, <laughs> my first response to that is the CIA doesn't do feelings. Uh, they do assessments, and they do assessments based upon intelligence from all sources. And we did have a comprehensive briefing uh, just before the Thanksgiving break on this issue by the CIA. That's all I'm going to tell you. I cannot talk about what happened in that briefing. I can talk about information that's available in the public record about what's gone on. And I think one of the most interesting documents produced in the public is by the Treasury Department on November 15th, where they sanctioned 15 Saudis and they listed why they did it, which was involvement in this incident. And the uh, Katani, the, the the lead guy, is the top person to to the to Mohammed bin Salman. He's the he's the next in line. And there's a tweet from him last summer that said, "I don't do things without instructions. I work for the king and the prince." Now, 
you don't have to be the CIA to put things together and say, how could this have happened without the prince being involved? It just, he's in total control. Uh, and, you know, I, we're not going to find an email that says, don't forget the bone saw. But it was, it's pretty clear without reference to what we heard in that briefing. Now, the, President Trump's not the first American president to face this decision to trade off between U.S. national security interests and human rights concerns when it comes to Saudi Arabia. But this is a very uh, in-your-face uh, case here with this murder of this journalist. Do you think that to send a clear message, you have to go beyond those individuals named in the sanctions, that you do have to directly, in some way, uh, punish the crown prince based on what has been reported to be the CIA's assessment that he did and play And what is publicly role. reported. And what is known, yes. And I think the, the, the statement that came from the White House last week was, was amazing because it made it sound easy. It basically said, we've got an important relationship with Saudi Arabia, therefore we're going to turn a blind eye to this. It's not that easy. And again, going back to the Treasury Department, they, they, they have this long paragraph about how this is a violation of American values. It undermines our credibility abroad. All of these things. I wish the president had read that before he made this statement that said, uh, this is, uh, you know, they're an important ally and therefore we're going to stand with them. He made it sound easy. We do have to make these difficult decisions. But uh, so far, what they're doing is giving a pass uh, to this guy, and I think it gives a pass to dictators around the world. That's the danger. It undermines our authority and the authority of our values uh, across the planet. Senator, thank you very much for being here in studio. Always good to talk to you. Thank you. We'll be back in one minute with Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, so stay with us. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. We're back with Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders, who joins us from Burlington this morning. He's also the author of a new book, Where We Go From Here, Two Years in the Resistance. Senator, welcome to the program. I do want to ask you about that book, but first off, you are on the Environmental Committee, and I want to ask you about this report from the Trump administration, a really sharp warning about the immediate danger of climate change, strongest language we've seen thus far from the federal government. What action will Congress take? Well, what Congress should do is move aggressively in listening not only to this report from the Trump administration, but for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which tells us, Margaret, that climate change is not only real, it is already doing irreparable harm all over this planet, including the United States of America. What Congress has got to do is take Trump on, take the fossil fuel industry on, and transform our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energies like solar and wind. And when we do that, we are going to lead the world in saving the planet. We're going to create millions of decent-paying jobs. We're going to lower the cost of electricity. And that is what we have got to do for our kids and our grandchildren if we are going to leave them a planet that is healthy and is habitable. I this know. is a very shock. This is a very alarming report. And we've got to wake up and address these issues. You've been warning about this for some time. But one of the things in the report is that uh, it estimates you could knock as much as 10 percent off the size of the U.S. economy by the end of the century because of related costs. 
If advocates like yourself use that financial argument, that economic argument, would it be more effective in taking some of the politics out of this? Because this has been painted as such a partisan issue, not a scientific one. Well, first of all, the debate is over about the reality of climate change and the incredible and costly harm it's going to do to this country. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in damage that we're going to have to pay for. Uh, Second of all, I think it is very clear uh, that we have got to bring our people together uh, to address this terribly important issue. And it is amazing to me that we have an administration right now that still considers uh, climate change to be a hoax, uh, who is not sure about whether it is man-made. We have got to rally the American people. And economically, I happen to believe, Margaret, that when you move to energy efficiency and sustainable energy, you're going to create millions of decent-paying jobs and lessen the cost of the damage that climate change will do to our country and around the world. But this is not, this is not a, an issue where we have, you know, where we can debate. The reality is real. The scientific community has made it 100% clear that this is a major crisis facing this country and our planet, and we have got to be bold and aggressive in standing up to the greed mm-hmm. of the fossil fuel industry who are more concerned about short-term profits than the planet we're leaving our kids and our grandchildren. Well, one of the foreign policy issues you do talk about in your book is uh, your call for uh, pulling back any kind of U.S. support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Uh, There is a resolution you have backed, along with Republican Mike Lee. Do you see, given the scrutiny in the wake of the killing of, of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, new support for this bill? I do. Uh, When we brought this up, I think it was in March, uh, we ended up with 44 uh, votes, only five Republicans. Uh, I think we now have a chance to get a majority of the United States Senate. Uh, I think people are looking at the horrific humanitarian disaster now taking place in Yemen. There was a recent report that over the last number of years, some 75,000 children have died of starvation. This is a country dealing with cholera cholera, a country dealing with a terrible level of famine. So you got that issue. You got the issue that this war was never authorized by the United States Congress in violation of our Constitution. And you got the Khashoggi uh, incident, which says that we have a Saudi government led by a despotic ruler who killed a political opponent in cold blood. Add that all together. Uh, I think the American people in Congress are now saying, let us end the support, our support uh, for the uh, Saudi-led war uh, in Yemen. You are calling for Democrats who are now going to be in the majority in the House to launch a kind of new contract uh, with America. And some of the things you put out there, you're saying Democrats should call for raising the minimum wage, make public universities tuition-free, expand Social Security, a number of other things. Is this a legislative agenda or a platform for a presidential run for you? (laughs) It's a legislative agenda, Margaret. You know, it's interesting. You, you pick up on, on what I wrote uh, in a Washington Post op-ed, and that is back in 1994, Newt Gingrich, who I disagree with on everything, really had a bold right-wing agenda, and I think we should learn from that. This is what the American people want, and we should do it. They want to raise the minimum wage to a living wage, which I think is 15 bucks an hour. They want pay equity for women. Poll after poll shows that the American people understand that our current dysfunctional health care system needs fundamental change, and that means Medicare for all, single-payer system. The American people understand that in a highly competitive global economy, uh, we have got to make public colleges and universities tuition-free. We have got to deal with climate change, as we just discussed. We have got to deal with a broken criminal justice system, with immigration reform, All of these issues are, in fact, what the American people want. And the question is whether Congress has the guts to stand up to the big money interests who want more tax breaks for the rich, who want to cut Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid, or we stand up for the shrinking middle class and we demand a government that represents all of us and legislation which represents the working families 
uh, of this country. Senator, I uh, look forward to talking to you about that uh, at another time and also the prospects for 2020, but we have to leave it there. We'll be back in a moment. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. A holiday never stops the news here in Washington, even if you hope it does. Uh, And that was as true as ever this week. So we'd like to welcome our panel now for some political analysis. Ramesh Panuru is a senior editor at the National Review and a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Susan Page is the Washington bureau chief at USA Today. Jamel Bowie is the chief political correspondent for Slate and a CBS News political analyst. And Matt Viser is a national political reporter for The Washington Post. Good to have you all here at the table. Where do we start? Um, a Thanksgiving Day subpoena for Jim Comey. Uh, we thought some of these public hearings might be over. It appears, based on what Congressman Gowdy said on our air, that at least the public forum might be. Susan, what does this uh, mean for the case, the special counsel, and does the American public need more public hearings on this? You think about James Comey and Loretta Lynch. They must have thought they were out of the woods when it came to subpoenas from the House Judiciary Committee that Democrats are taking over within weeks. It is hard, I think, to see this as anything but a stunt as Republicans are about to give up power involuntarily uh, in the House in a, a final effort. It's hard, it is hard to see this as a really serious effort to conclude some kind of uh, meaningful investigation. Well, uh, it it was interesting to hear what seemed like an offer, maybe not an official one, to to have this deposition be on tape and then perhaps edited and released. We'll see if that happens, Matt. Um, I want to ask you, Ramesh, about something that happened today that isn't necessarily on the domestic front but does play into U.S. policy, which is our closest ally just finalized its divorce from the EU. Uh, The U.K., is exiting in the months ahead. This has been really rough for Theresa May, the prime minister. What do you think this signals, though? Is this just a a one-off? Is this more indicative of the kind of forces we're seeing uh, in the world today beyond the U.S., where institutions are being rattled a bit? I think it's got enormous significance on a number of fronts. For one thing, Britain's departure from the EU, and even, you know, if this uh, deal is modified... or not, it's not going to have the say it once had in the European Union. It means the European Union is going to have more tendency to be centralized, more tendency to be dominated by countries that aren't as close to us as Britain is. As Britain is. It has um, implications for whether Britain can conduct a trade agreement with us. That was discussed a lot in the run-up to Brexit, and after Brexit, this agreement seems to tie Britain's hands in its ability to do that. And more generally, there's the question of its effect on British politics. If you have a demoralized Tory party, does it help Jeremy Corbyn eventually become prime minister? And it is just one more sign of the convulsions that nationalism is causing on politics around the entire globe. America's in, in search of a new best friend inside the EU, as in some t- in some ways, is that Ireland, is that France, who will that be? Um, but turning back to home, I, I want to talk about this public spat in some ways, but really unusual, between the Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts and the president over whether the courts are being politicized. Jamel, what did you make of the president's public statement here? It's it's a little strange to see the president antagonize the chief justice this way just after getting a justice onto the court. Um, I think that if the president wanted to ensure that he'd have good relations as cases relevant to his presidency reached the court, he wouldn't have done this. 
I can see why John Roberts has decided to push back. In the very near future, there will likely be many 5-4 decisions with the conservative majority. And creating this sort of political distance between him and the president, I think he, he thinks may uh, provide legitimacy to those decisions hmm. when they happen. One thing I think is worth saying is that I'm not sure that the president is necessarily wrong here, as Representative Gowdy said in, in his interview, that there is sort of an at least an informal recognition that uh, partisan affiliation uh, has some weight on how justices and judges make their decisions. There is a reason, right, why Republican voters were willing to look past so much of what Trump did just to get him in office, should he could nominate judges for the federal court system. And so I think there's this way, it's been said in a variety of circumstances and contexts how one thing about Trump is he sort of strips the pretense from a lot in American politics. I do think this is a situation where he is kind of stripping the pretense from American politics and saying plainly that, look, the justice in the United States, while independent, also is inevitably tinged by partisanship and ideology. Um, and he doesn't like the fact that that means that there are judges appointed by a president he opposes who will likely be an obstacle to his political agenda. Ramesh, do you agree with that? Because some conservatives have been uncomfortable with his references to the judiciary. So I'm going to join the Jamel Bowie, Trey Gowdy, Donald Trump wow. coalition. Wow. I don't think and, I ever uh, thought that coalition was possible. But. Look, I, I think that Roberts's com- Chief Justice Roberts's comment about there not being Obama judges or Trump judges was more aspirational than descriptive, <laughs> let's say. But I think the, the part of what's going on here is that the Trump administration has a very bad record in court. It has been handed a lot of defeats in court. And one thing that we should keep in mind is it's not all been Democratic appointees to the bench that have handed him those defeat. So, for example, the question of Jim Acosta's press pass, Mm -hmm. the administration lost that in court, and that was a judge that Trump himself had appointed. Timothy Kelly was a district court judge. So what he's saying is true, but I don't think it quite gets to the underlying problem, which is the judiciary as a branch has not been especially tolerant of the kind of on-the-fly, improvisational, sort of whim-driven policymaking we're seeing from this administration. Matt, you've been looking at some of the races still going on uh, post-midterms. I know you're headed down to Mississippi, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Mississippi has been sort of a fascinating uh, race here. The the final one, uh, we think, of the midterms uh, that hasn't been decided. And and it's definitely taken a a racial uh, tinge to it uh, in the wake of Cindy Hyde-Smith's comments about being willing to sit on the front row of a, of a public hanging, and, and you know she's running against the first uh, the man seeking to become the first black uh, senator since Reconstruction. There, so and the president is endorsing her in a tweet today, and will be at a rally he's in got, the week to come. He's got two rallies uh, uh, on Tuesday, uh, or sorry, tomorrow uh, on on Monday, the eve of the election, which is is her hope is that he pulls her over over the edge, it, you know, and and the president of the United States having to go to a race in Mississippi for two rallies uh, on the eve of the election just shows you how, how close this could be and, and how worried Republicans are. You, you wouldn't think it'd be hard for a Republican to win the Senate race in, in Mississippi. Um, but, but this has been a, a, different, a different kind of race. And we've seen such different strategies by African-American candidates in the South in the Florida and Georgia governor's races and now in this Senate race because there has been a feeling in Georgia and Florida that a African-American candidate can win a statewide race by appealing to African-American voters, not trying to appeal to moderate uh, whites in the, in the middle, which has been kind of the traditional prescription. So this will be a test about whether anything has really changed. Well, it's the final test. I mean, uh, you know, black voters were, were very excited about Andrew Gillum, Stacey Abrams. Uh, they came close, closer than a lot of people thought, uh, but, but ended up losing. So this is the, sort of the, that last one. What is things that Mike guess people probably have to take the more traditional path. And the thing about Georgia and Florida is while you do have large black populations, you also have a large and growing population of liberal college-educated whites. And so that that helps you able to play a strategy that's more tailored to black voters because you can kind of bring those voters along. But Mississippi doesn't have that. And in fact, has a very inelastic white population that votes routinely 90-10, 95-5 for Republican candidates. And so even, I think it's black population around 40, 44%. It's very high. It's the highest in the country. But that inelasticity in the white vote makes SB's odds really hard, even if the gap between a, a loss and a win is, like, very narrow. Like, it's maybe a couple points, but it's so inelastic and it's difficult. SB's people are, have told me that they, they just need to get 25 to 
30% of the white vote, uh, which tells you how, you know, you know, different strategies are working here. Uh, if they can get black voters out in, in big numbers, mm -hmm. which is hard, you know, which is a big task in a, in a runoff election that is taking place five days after Thanksgiving. Uh, although that's, this race has been getting a lot of attention. I yeah. think people are mo mo mobilized and lines are long outside polling places already for absentee ballots. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We have more to talk about on the other side of it, so stay with us. We'll have more from our panel. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. We're back with more from our panel. Uh, I want to ask you, Ramesh, you've seen it, it's rare to hear Bernie Sanders and President Trump on the same side of an issue. Generally, both are for this uh, effort to um, overhaul criminal justice. Uh, there is a bill right now that is causing some sort of internecine fighting within the Republican Party. Will we actually see this move forward in the lame duck? You know, it's possible. One of the rare areas where we've seen bipartisan work um, in the entire country, really, has been criminal justice reform. There have been state legislatures where you've had Republicans and Democrats, Republican governors, Democratic governors, coming together on this issue. President Trump, I would say, is sort of an unlikely advocate mm -hmm. of criminal justice reform. It doesn't really fit with a lot of the other things um, that President Trump is talking about. But his advocacy of it and his ditching of Jeff Sessions, who as an attorney general was dead set against this, I think has really increased the chances it's going to happen. I'm not sure I would refer to the president as an advocate, though. I, I, I tend to see this as President Trump is obsessed with wins, with getting legislative wins. And so a criminal justice bill, even if it does a run counter not just to his uh, not choice of Jeff Sessions for attorney general, but kind of like the entire tenor of his rhetoric for the past three years runs counter to criminal justice reform. Um, a, a, a bill passing would count as a legislative win, and I think he would tout it. And I don't think he particularly cares about the content of that win. He hasn't had a lot of them. <laughs> uh, well, there, and, there's, and there's, to be fair, there's no pledge that this will go to a vote in the lame duck. Uh, Leader McConnell has said they're still reviewing whether that is possible. Um, but it is an interesting thing to see floated at this point. Will we see, Susan, anything substantial move forward during the lame duck? Well, we think we we'll hope they fund the government because then we won't have a shutdown. That would be one thing. You know, I think the most interesting thing uh, that where we might see some kind of revolt by Rep Republicans on the Hill is over the Khashoggi killing mm -hmm. and the the president's decision apparently not to punish the Saudis in a serious way for what uh, or not to the, the, not to punish the Crown Prince for what intelligence agencies have concluded was his. Uh, involvement, his ordering of the murder of a Washington Post journalist. And we, we've seen just today Senator Mike Lee, a Republican, saying intelligence indicates this wasn't a feeling, it was a finding. We saw uh, Senator Joni Ernst, also a Republican, saying if that's the case, something should happen, consequences should follow. On that issue, will Senate Republicans be willing to buck the president, who is quite isolated both in American politics and international politics? with his stance on this issue. Well, can, he get, can they get any kind of veto-proof majority that would in some way hit the crown prince without severing or hurting the relationship with Saudi Arabia, a key ally? Well, you probably need to make a choice somewhere what your priority is there. And President Trump has made a decision that he cares more about the relationship with Saudi Arabia. Do others disagree strongly enough 
to confront him on that? And I don't think we know the answer to that question. It'd be unlikely, not the tr Republican tradition on Capitol Hill, to stand up to President Trump. But I wonder about this issue, which has really kind of caught uh, the concern, I think, of a lot of people. Uh, and, and there will be conversation about the war in Yemen and U.S. support for that in some way, any kind of um, uh, conversation, as Bernie Sanders said, he had that bill, a resolution he's floating. But I want to ask you, um, Matt, you listen to Senator Sanders. You've been looking at 2020 candidates. Does he talk like one to you? <laughs> The, the, the fact that he's coming out with a platform for House Democrats, you know, to, to sort of live by and, and do and, and trying to assert himself as a leader uh, in, in the party heading into 2020, uh, it strikes me as yes. Like, he, he does seem very much like uh, a, a candidate. Uh, the difference this time for, for Bernie Sanders and everybody, frankly, is the crowded field that he's going to face. Uh, you know, against Hillary Clinton, there, there was there was just, you know, a, a binary choice between two people. This time, it's not going to be that way. It's going to be the same problems that Republicans had uh, in 2016, where you couldn't uh, you had to have two debates, you know, an undercard debate and a main debate because there's so many candidates. Uh, but I do think these next few weeks uh, are vitally important for every candidate thinking about running. We'll probably start to see announcements coming very shortly uh, in the early part of next year so that people can begin their fundraising and try to post a big number in that first quarter uh, is going to be an important distinction point. Uh, but the Democratic Party has a, has a lot of issues to sort out, and, and it's going to be a crowded field. What's so interesting about the midterm results and really the entire midterm election story is I think it sends important signals about what Democratic primary voters might be looking mm -hmm. for in a candidate. I think that if Senator Sanders is running in 2020, not just for 2020, that he will he has a good chance of doing well. But some of the other people floated, um, former Vice President Joe Biden, um, uh, Senator Sher Sherrod Brown, may find themselves at somewhat of a disadvantage because it seems what Democratic primary voters are looking for are women candidates and candidates of color. Just down the board, Democratic primary voters over the last year, if they've had a choice, if they, if they could choose either a woman candidate or a non-white candidate and a white guy, they've almost always taken the other two, one of the other two. And that, for me, seems to suggest that as we approach 2020, you can kind of divide up the field and rate accordingly based off of identity, really. Candidates who represent diversity, who may be historic first, have, I think, an advantage or an on-paper advantage over those that don't. Well, Democrats want somebody new, right? right like Democrats right. usually do. And so that might argue for Beto O'Rourke, who would be a white man. I mean, there's some right. energy behind him. But I do think there is zero possibility that the Democratic ticket in 2020 would be two white men. Oh, I absolutely. S Senator uh, Sanders yeah. also has another problem going into 2020, which is that Hillary Clinton was a very useful foil for him, mm. as she was for Donald Trump. The contrast made the idealism of his candidacy look better. He's going to have a bunch, not just a lot of candidates in the field, but a lot of candidates who sound a little bit more like him, who are trying to bottle what he had in 2016 and use it for themselves. That's not a problem he had last time. And in this book that Senator Sanders was on to talk about, uh, he in many ways describes winning as not actually winning the election, but enforcing the platform of the Democratic Party more towards the progressive agenda that he, in many ways, represents. Is there more of a progressive party now? Did he win? He did win. Yeah. I think he did win. If you look at Medicare for all, which means different things to different candidates, that is now a centrist Democratic position to have. So I think that whatever happens with Senator Sanders, he's had a big effect. We're talking more about Senator Sanders than we are about Hillary Clinton. When you think about the fundraising aspect of it, too, where Bernie Sanders kept touting the small dollar donations, I think that is going to be the vehicle for which a lot of candidates run. It's what Beto O'Rourke did successfully in Texas, which was uh, forego corporate PAC money and raise money from a lot of people in small dollar amounts. And I, I think that's another, uh, you know, sort of legacy of Bernie Sanders in, in moving the party a little bit more in that direction. One illustration of how I think Sanders has moved the party left is that centrist members of the incoming House class have positions like expand Medicaid, have a public option, positions that during 2009-2010 were the progressive, the, the uh, House Progressive Caucus positions in health care were what are now the centrist positions in the Democratic Party. And that alone, that right there, tells the look story. at the minimum wage. First Obama term, they wanted to raise it to $9. It's now not, $15 is now the Democratic bid. We're going to have to leave it there. More to talk about, of course, in the future with all of you. But we're going to be uh, in a commercial break and on your airwaves in a moment.
Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading, and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com slash save. Three, two, zero. This video was shot last May when NASA launched its $830 million InSight mission with the goal of landing on Mars. Tomorrow, the world will be watching to see if the spacecraft can make it through the perilous seven minutes of terror and land on the surface of the red planet. Here to tell us about what we might learn from the mission is NASA's Stephen Clark, who heads the agency's exploration efforts. Welcome to Face the Nation. Thank you. What are the seven minutes of terror? (laughs) Well, the seven minutes of terror are the time it takes from when the actual probe enters the Mars atmosphere until it lands. And the reason it's called the seven minutes of terror is because it's very hard to land on Mars. In fact, only 40% of all landing attempts have been successful. Only 40% have actually made it. And the U.S. is still the only country that has done that. That's correct, yes. So why are we spending the money to do this? What exactly do you think is going to be learned? We're continuing to, to investigate Mars because Mars was formed at the same time as the Earth and the Moon. And the more we learn about our neighboring planets, it helps us learn how the Earth evolved. In fact, we know that Mars had water on the surface and it had an atmosphere somewhat similar to Earth millions and millions of years ago. But for some reason, Mars developed differently, and we were trying to find out why. This is uh, the InSight probe. This is not manned. How close are we to putting humans on Mars? Well, we continue to perfect landing techniques uh, using robotic landers on Mars. And certainly we're going to be using that technology to develop landers to return to the moon with humans first. And as we learn more on how to do that, we're going to then apply it to Mars for our first human exploration of Mars um, after we've established our presence on the moon in a more permanent uh, basis than we have in the past. As you know, with Apollo, we landed six times. Um, we're going to return this time and actually learn to live off the planet, learn, learn our lessons on the moon, which is a lot closer than Mars. And then when we're ready, we will take humans to Mars, which is a much longer journey. How, much, how many years out are we from that? From uh, those things? We're looking at, uh, for the moon, we'd like to return humans in the late 2020s. Um, Certainly, we will continue to work through our technology development and, and see how long that takes. Uh, and we're looking at re- uh, taking humans to Mars sometime in the 2030s. The 2030s. 2030s. So NASA is one of the agencies that signed off on this climate report that came out last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy around it, some questions about politics, but you're just, you're a scientist. You look at data. How do Americans understand this warning? Well, NASA is one of 13 agencies that uh, contributes to that climate uh, report. And so we continue to acquire data with all of our uh, Earth orbiting satellites, and we provide that data to a wide range of researchers who develop their findings and so forth like that. And We've seen through these climate reports that the climate is changing, and it's good that we know how it's changing so that we can better prepare for those uh, more, what I'd call, severe changes that we've seen through the weather. Uh, But we'll continue to provide uh, rich data for the researchers to come up with their findings, which will then help uh, government, really, globally, prepare for various um, weather scenarios and, and how the climate continues to change. And does learning more about these other planets, like Mars, 
help in any way solve the challenges that you're seeing on this planet? It's, it certainly could, um, and that's why we continue to explore. Um, as we understand better how these worlds formed and why they went through the various evolutions like they did, um, it can unlock some of the, the mysteries that we have here on Earth that we could potentially apply here and, and better prepare, certainly. So understanding how Mars was formed could potentially help us understand how to do what here on Earth? Well, as we learn more about why the atmosphere changed and how it thinned with Mars, and if we can better understand the processes that caused that, then if we can apply that to Earth and see if there are any similarities, then we may be able to uh, determine ways to to uh, maybe even help prevent those things from happening. That's fascinating. It is. And we'll be watching tomorrow the landing around 3 p.m. Eastern. 3 p.m. Eastern. 12 p.m. Pacific. We will be watching. Okay. Good luck with those seven minutes of terror. Uh, thank you. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. We hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. And for those traveling home today, be safe. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were independent Senators Angus King of Maine and Bernie Sanders of Vermont, South Carolina Republican Congressman Trey Gowdy, and NASA's Space Exploration Chief Steve Clark. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow... If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st. Survivor's back, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.